Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'll be joined later in the program today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. Later, we'll discuss the standardized testing problem in higher education, the Supreme Court taking up homeless camping bans, and politics in the pulpit in South Carolina. But first, I'm joined by Father Robert Sirico, Acton's co-founder and president emeritus. Father Sirico is also a producer of Acton's documentary film, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. He's a longtime friend of Jimmy Lai, the Hong Kong political dissident and newspaper publisher currently on trial for alleged violations of Hong Kong's national security law. Father Sirico has just returned from a surprise trip to Hong Kong, where he attended the trial of Jimmy Lai. We are about 10 days in to the trial of Jimmy Lai. The prosecution right now is still presenting its case. I think we've been told that we can expect that the trial portion of it would last something around 80 to 90 business days. So we've still got a ways to go in this trial. There have been some interesting revelations so far at least as to what the prosecution's case is. And to me, what has been interested, interesting is what they consider to be evidence. Uh, some of the evidence of Jimmy having colluded with foreign forces include things as banal as the people he followed on Twitter, uh, email communications he had with Benedict Rogers from Hong Kong Watch in the United Kingdom, where he was asking for, I think it was Lord Alton or Lord Patton to comment for an Apple Daily news story on what was going on in Hong Kong, uh, very much in keeping with the way that uh, I've been characterizing, I think we've all been characterizing this trial, that Jimmy stands charged with uh, conspiracy to commit journalism. Um, really, that's it's not a whole lot more to it, to me, than, than that. So we're about 10 days into the trial, and uh, Father, you just got back from going to Hong Kong and spending a day uh, was it one day or um, how many days of the trial? I was at the trial for one day. For one day. I was in Hong Kong for three. For three. How did you get there? By plane. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, right after Christmas, it just occurred to me, uh, I was talking with someone and I, I had presumed that we needed a visa to get into Hong Kong. And they said, oh, no, you don't need a visa to get into Hong Kong. I said, oh, well, then I'm going to Hong Kong because I, I didn't think the Chinese would give me a visa. Probably not. Um, certainly to the mainland. Yeah. Um, but and, and I'll bring this up as we as we talk about it. The, it's very different. Hong Kong is very different from the mainland. I think we kind of conflate the two because of the uh, tightening grip that's going on there. But it's not there yet. And we can we can talk about that. Um so I arrived, and um, uh, a number of people around me were very concerned for my going. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't cavalier about it, but I just thought that the risks were 
uh, minimal that the, the worst thing that could happen is they turn me back. Um, and I went in without my computer, without my telephone. I went in with a burner phone in case it was confiscated. I didn't want to compromise any of the communications that I have on those devices. Um, and then I had some private meetings and did not have a sense of being um, uh, followed anywhere. The night I arrived, I uh, went out of the hotel, walked into a mall, and abruptly turned around and walked the other way, and then went halfway around the block and then came back another way and then went up another street, and I saw no one following me at any, at any point, and that's what I was... Uh, concerned with and, and thinking about. That that may, at least in a small sense, would be different from previous times. I know I've heard you tell the story of having visited Jimmy and the, uh, we talk about this in the film the too, yeah. the, the quote-unquote paparazzi mm -hmm. who are really stringers who are hired by the government to document everybody who was going into yes. and out of Jimmy's house and yes. who was meeting with them. Well, these were all, uh, I, I, I encountered those people again, but this time it was at the courthouse. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then I, you know, there was no uh, public disclosure of my going to Hong Kong. We didn't do a, an advanced, uh, I didn't tell anybody other than a very tight circle of people that I was going because I didn't want to set it up uh, so that um, it would be problematic. Uh, I didn't even tell Jimmy's family that I was coming. Um, I made a few arrangements to, to talk with some people beforehand. Some of that fell through, but um, uh, I got there and was advised on how best to go about getting tickets. Uh, you have to have a ticket to get in. And what I'm told by several sources is that the uh, CCP sends their people uh, to go and get the tickets and hold them back. There are only about 65 seats in the courtroom for the public. And then there's a, another section where you can sit outside and watch it on the proceedings. I wanted to be in the courtroom mainly because I wanted to see Jimmy and I wanted him to see me. And I wanted Teresa Lai, his wife, to see me. And um, I didn't feel um, threatened going into Hong Kong. I was very aware of going through customs, but... That just went right through mm -hmm. uh, and uh, didn't feel any kind of pressure until I arrived at the court. I took a cab from my hotel to the court. And it was when I got to the court, I saw the phalanx of police. I'm told that there are approximately surrounding the entire courthouse a total of about a thousand police officers. Yeah, that's what I read as well. Yeah. Um, now some of them are in groups. They're they're under tents and these little kind of staged in different places. But as you come down into it, there are barricades, and you have to drive through these barricades, and then you don't even stop in front of the courthouse. You have to stop down the block, and then walk toward it. And you're walking past armed guards into the courthouse. Uh, and then that's when I bumped into a phalanx of probably 40 or 50 journalists and paparazzi. I didn't know 
which they were, but I noticed a number of them had press identification on. And it was when I went past them and then went into the courthouse itself and went through the security checks that I had a sense of being kind of enveloped in this whole system, surrounded by police. And that felt a little suffocating to me. I wasn't sure where to go, uh, but they just said, go up to the top of the escalator and ask the guard there. And I thought he was going to send me to someplace else, but instead he just handed me a ticket. And um, uh, I then proceeded to go and sit in the uh, kind of the public gallery where there was a there were television screens, um, and um, they said to wait here. And then they called people in. Each of the tickets are numbered in groups of about ten or twenty. And then I went in, and probably the third group. And interestingly enough, uh, Cardinal Pell, uh, I'm sorry, Cardinal Zen um, was uh, there. Now, I know Cardinal Zen very well, but Cardinal Zen did not acknowledge me (laughs) as we were walking in. Uh, And I just kind of followed in his direction and went into a a pew (laughs) And um, sat down, and I didn't realize that this was the family uh, pew. Yeah. <laughs> this is where the family sat. Then Teresa came in with her daughter, and Teresa was quite surprised to see me. Um, and at first was kind of standoffish, uh, sat down, and then got up and came over and hugged me and thanked me for being there. But it was very interesting that the first reaction was to just kind of almost like Cardinal Pell, uh, Cardinal Zen, ignoring me. Uh, and then her daughter came up and embraced me, and uh, we talked for a while. Her daughter is a lawyer, and she's on the legal team as well. Oh, great. So I um, um, then it's a modern courtroom. Uh, the proceedings are in Chinese and English. Is it translated in English so you'd listen through a headset or uh, no, do they no, do it simultaneously? Everything, uh, everything was done – I don't know. Uh, they they had some announcements in Chinese but everything was in English. Now, okay. if there was another simultaneous translation going on to Chinese, I don't know. The, okay. uh, and there were three judges, two women and one man. The man was Asian. Uh, and it's very British. Uh, they're wearing British uh, court vesture, wigs. Uh, I would say there were about 10 lawyers on each side, and there's a whole kind of assemblage of lawyers and researchers in the front before the judges. Uh, Jimmy was in a a closed-off in in glass, encased in glass area with three young security guards uh, in the back and then the judges in the front and then the uh, witnesses or the people attending were on the side. And so we were on the side. So I had a view of both. And when Jimmy came in, he looked over to Teresa, who was sitting just near me, and then saw me and was surprised. I could see the surprised look on his face. And then he calmed down and tears welled in his eyes. He placed his two hands together in the kind of um, Asian acknowledgement and bowed toward me, and I simply made the sign of the cross. 
in his direction, offering him my blessing. Um, and then the proceedings went on. Uh, yeah, what did you hear transpire that day? That day was what we what you were just recounting, uh, the recitation of all of the emails. It really is, in one sense, as you're sitting there for six, seven hours, it's mind-numbing to just hear the enumeration of, on this date, this email was sent to this person, and this said this, and this said that, and it just kept going down and down and down. And as you say, it was all kinds of personal emails with names of people that I knew, uh, who were mentioning people in our documentary uh, on um, uh, on Jimmy's situation, the Hong Konger. Um, and my final sense of it after several hours of it was to say this is the trees that are going to obfuscate the forest, that um, everything that was said, all of the accounts that were given – were things that were articulated uh, in um, in editorials and in public statements and the kinds of things that you'd say. And the basic uh, case, and remember that this is one of, what is it, three or four cases that uh, Jimmy has had to face, this being the most serious of the three or four, uh, because this has a potential of life imprisonment. Uh, the, the case, what they're arguing is that there was a conspiracy to collude with foreign entities to end the national security law. Um, now, in free societies, if there's a law that you want repealed, you— You advocate for that. You advocate for that. Yeah. And that's what all of these emails uh, constituted was a, an organization of advocacy and articulation and refining the argument and seeing who could help make the case stronger and what influences could be brought to bear uh, to make the case stronger. Uh, all of those are the trees. The forest is, in my estimation, the damnable national security law, which gives virtually totalitarian authority uh, uh, to the police and the courts over uh, the whole of Hong Kong. I think this is an important distinction that right. the under the auspices of what Jimmy is charged under the national security law in hearing that recitation of the people that he was in communication with and things that we would consider to be very normal. And there is something interesting that stuck out in me to that too. The you know people who haven't served on a jury, uh, often have this picture of court proceedings of being like you would see in the movies, right? Perry Mason, you know, yeah. <laughs> anything from you, know, Perry Mason or, myself, or yeah. uh, well, I, I was, yeah. I, in a way, date myself too with the, you know, the first courtroom movie that always comes to mind for me as A Few Good Men. Um, Oh, and yes, yes. the uh, this is also why not I've always twelve angry men. Uh, not twelve angry men. You only see the jury deliberation <laughs> right, there, right, right. Um, or even to use as an example, my cousin Vinny, which oh, is yeah. used in law schools because actually a whole lot of the legal procedure part of it is very accurate. Yes, yes, very but much so. It's it's rarely, if ever, that entertaining that no, you get no. that kind of cross examination of witnesses. It is a lot of tedium. It's a lot of tedium, and any spontaneity is immediately put down. Yes, put down severely. I mean, not that there was much. Yeah. There's no Al Pacino yelling. This whole court is out of order, right, or anything right, like right, that. Right. But the the point that I wanted to make is, I felt it, the it, impulse once or twice. I but can I, I, I can imagine <laughs> um, the 
in a way of speaking, the things that Jimmy's charged with under the law, under the national security law, he's guilty of. In the same way that, you know, somebody violating the fugitive slave law back in the history of the United States would have been guilty of that. The question is, is this a just law? And the answer to that is obviously no. That's that's the forest. That the, that's what I was saying. That's the real key thing. But the other the other part of this is, how does the writing of a column or a conversation with friends or an editorial in a newspaper uh, constitute this violation of? a law if there's freedom of the press because they want you to have the pretense of the freedom of the press. I mean, the entire um, uh, legal proceedings, it's a legal proceeding that's, uh, you know, adjudicated by uh, justices who see themselves as independent uh, judges of the law. Now. I have to tell you, I, I come away, and it's important that I mention this. Going into it, and a lot of it had to do with conversations about my security. I, I, one of the first things when I got there, when I was waiting to enter the courtroom, a reporter immediately came up to me uh, from um, Bloomberg, and she said she asked if I uh, were one of the uh, bishops who signed the petition. Uh, there were 10 bishops from all over the world. And I told her, I said, no, I, those were bishops. I'm just a priest. I said, but I helped to coordinate that, uh, that effort. And she asked who I was. And I told her I was the producer of the, um, the documentary on Jimmy Lai. And she was amazed. And she said, you're very brave to be here. And I said, if you want to see bravery, look in that courtroom. That man is the, is the one who's brave. Uh, so I think all of that made me think uh, I'm walking into North Korea. It's not North Korea. I, I've been to Hong Kong. I don't know how many times. I, I, you know. Yeah, this is what I want to ask you. I mean, I, I know you've been to Hong Kong. I, I, I've, I've asked a few uh, dozen times, maybe. Probably, yeah. What is the environment yes. like now? What is the feeling that you get being in that the city? The thing I always said about Hong Kong it was probably after my first visit was Hong Kong is New York's Chinatown on steroids and much bigger. Uh, now Hong Kong is New York's Chinatown on Valium. Uh, it is so much quieter. I, I thought, uh, where is everybody? I mean, it was like I, I arrived on, um, would I arrive on a Friday night or Saturday night? I think I arrived on a Saturday night. And Hong Kong would have been teeming with people any night of the week. Uh, and remember, it's an Asian city, so it's not, uh, you know, they don't kind of do the Sunday thing the way we do it in Grand Rapids anyway. Right. Um, there were just so many less people. And as I got to talk with people, uh, this was acknowledged that there is a great fear and you could feel it. Uh, on the part of people, the way they talk to you. You know, I've been to Venezuela, I've been to Cuba, I've been to Nicaragua, um, and I know what it is to speak with people and before they answer a question, once the conversation got serious, before they answer the question, they look over their shoulder. I mean, you, you read these stories from the Cold War period, you know. 
but this I saw in Hong Kong now. I had never seen that before. Um, I was in a little shop um, that I had visited previously just to see the gentleman. And, uh, and in the course of our conversation, in his shop, he lowered his voice and said, the, the Chinese are coming here and they're really taking over everything. The, the priests now are beginning to come from the mainland and the schools, the curriculum has been altered and you, you can't quite um, operate the way you, you used to have to operate. Nonetheless, there are businesses functioning. Uh, now, a lot of people have left Hong Kong uh, and in the higher tiers of business and education and uh, research and, and the like. Um, management has been depleted, which has resulted in a number of um, uh, accidents in workplaces because the middle management who keep the glue together is gone. So you, you can have Chinese workers come from the mainland, but they don't have the experience of managing the company. So you have that kind of phenomenon taking place. And um, the pressure is to conform. Uh, so one of the things I learned uh, that I didn't expect is that there is a real um, animosity within Hong Kong amongst Hong Kongers. Uh, those Hong Kongers are who are acquiescing to what's happening. Uh, they're working with and becoming the defenders of their new masters, whereas the other Hong Kongers who want to resist among the two million people of this, what, six million population island who resisted uh, are seeing them take advantage uh, of their new masters. And the pressure, for instance, um, Jimmy's lawyers in the court are mocked for being people who are being paid a lot of money. This, this case is costing a lot of money. They estimate that it's cost the Chinese, the Communist Party, something like $100 million as a whole mm -hmm. for this, this whole thing. And uh, they want to say that Jimmy's lawyers, oh, they're well paid. Well, what was pointed out to me by someone who would know is they're, they're being paid for their services. Uh, but they'll never get jobs again because all of the businesses won't do business with them anymore because they're Chinese. More and more, the orientation of the business community and the legal community and all, all that goes along with that, their whole apparatus, uh, is directed toward mainland interests and that the economic interests uh, are directed that way and that the Hong Kongers are not spending money in Hong Kong. They're now leaving and going to China even if it's just for a trip uh, and spending, they'd rather spend the money in the mainland than in Hong Kong itself for this reason. So someone described it as a kind of fratricide mm. and an auto-censoring um, that's happening among people. Two more questions for you. Any, any other takeaways just from the experience, um, particularly, I know you mentioned that you felt the, you know, the, the kind of, pressure of being like in the 
courthouse itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, did you you went through customs, you did all of that and leaving. Did at any point you feel unsafe? Are there any other no. takeaways you just had in general from the experience that no, you can share? I, I think the the, the concern or the, the revelation to me was this is how a society becomes totalitarian. Uh, I didn't walk out of Hong Kong in, nine, in 2018. I think that was the last time I was there. Um, and then walked back into North Korea. Uh, uh, what I've walked back to is in a, uh, into a society that is in the process mm-hmm. of acquiescing and divisions are being made within that society, within the business community, within the church, uh, because I had extensive meetings with people in the church, um, that you see the compromise begin to take place, people making their peace with this new regime. Um, and unless something gives, and that's very possible because Xi's regime is not stable. Uh, he himself uh, is said to be very ill, and uh, you saw what happened uh, as a result of the COVID thing, how that that whole— Remember the Tiananmen Square exploded within a matter of weeks, Yeah, uh, and this could happen at any time. They've just had this wholesale firing of the generals in—, in China. So if that regime goes under, the question is what happens? I I think the point that I was about to make, the way that you were describing the changes in Hong Kong also equally applies to what you were just describing on the mainland, which is the the Hemingway line from The Sun Also Rises about how you go bankrupt very slowly and then all of a sudden. So you you see as people, you know, on a daily basis start to make their peace with the changes that have been happening in Hong Kong. You know, it's a Things from a day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day basis may feel like kind of normal. All of a sudden, one day you wake up and you realize just how dramatically different everything is. I think that's what's happening. And I think it's this could also be true when I would uh, was the ambassador for this film and do traveling and would present it to audiences doing Q&A would typically get a question about, you know, what is the state of things in China? Is there any hope for for China? And I my my answer was one to quote that line from Hemingway that, you know, the we didn't see the collapse of the Soviet Union coming. We didn't see the Berlin Wall falling. We didn't see that gate being opened until it happened. And these things they they Tiananmen Square, as you pointed out, is a perfect example of this too. That these things just they kind of happen in a way that we don't really see them coming. And I like to think of regimes like China, like marble. They're strong, but they're brittle. There's no flexibility to them whatsoever. And I think you see this also with uh, Russia is a good example of this, that when you don't have a society with the free flow of information, where even the people within the regime, the generals that would have needed to tell Putin, like, we're going to send people into a meat grinder over the course of years Mm -hmm. if we go ahead with this, didn't have the freedom to tell the truth. And as a result, you know, while sadly things seem to be going better for the Russians in Ukraine at the moment – um, it certainly hasn't gone according to the original plan. And that could have been knowable or at least the potentiality of a lot of the problems could have been considered more seriously if there were a culture in which there was the free flow of information. But by definition, because there's not, 
You're and, never going to have that happen. Yeah, and that's exactly what this trial is about, free yeah. flow of information. Exactly, exactly. That flexibility, that give and take, that knowledge. Um, you know, not to be too um, academic about this, but it's an important point, that among the people who saw this was uh, economist Ludwig von Mises and then his colleague Friedrich von Hayek, who wrote, in 1921, Mises wrote an essay on economic calculation under socialism and how it can't mm -hmm. calculate because mm -hmm. it, it restricts the economic information you need in order to make economic planning rational. Um, this is what's happening on the, uh, on the level of personal liberties, uh, is it's constricting and that constriction is what makes the society brittle and more breakable if, if you hit the right spot. Because remember, these great um, monuments of marble like the, uh, the Pietà or the David are made from solid marble, even though they look like they're breathing, uh, because the artist knew where to, to apply the pressure with the chisel. And I think if we know where to apply the pressure, uh, and this is exactly what Jimmy Lai is doing. He knows exactly. He knows Hayek. He knows Mises, yeah. and he's applying this pressure, even with the good chance that he is not going to be able to make the cut. But he nonetheless will will go to bed at night knowing uh, that he tried. I have to say that in looking at him, he looks good, uh, and. I say this as a priest who counsels a lot of people in a lot of different circumstances from a distance. He looks at peace. Would you go back again? I would. I mean, if the circumstances were right, I mean, now that I'm speaking out, I intend to write uh, an essay on this. Um, by the way, the Hong Konger is available on YouTube in Hong Kong. I, I took out my burner phone and went to YouTube, and there it was. Three million views. Um, I would go back. I mean, again, I, I don't think they're at this stage. They're either not going to let me in the country, uh, or, or detain me for a little while. But they're not going to retain a, a priest who is an, a priest. Not that I get much support from the Vatican because they're not doing much uh, on Jimmy's behalf. Uh, uh, who is also an American citizen and an Italian citizen, they're not going to do anything. So it, it's not a matter of bravery. It's a matter of would I be inconvenienced for you know a long trip? I mean, it's a 15-hour trip to get there. Well, Father, thank you so much for sharing this uh, experience with us. If you want to watch our documentary, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, you can do so by going to freejimmylai.com. We'll put that link in the show notes. And if you... And if you want to follow regular updates on the trial, you can visit the website supportjimmylai.com. They are posting regular updates on what is transpiring in his trial, which again will be going on for uh, quite uh, a good while longer, a um, number more weeks. So we will keep you posted on that here on uh, on this program, uh, as well as you can follow that at supportjimmylie.com. We'll put both of those links in the show notes. Now I want to bring in Dan and Dylan, and we're going to turn our attention again to higher education to start for today. And a really interesting piece in the New York Times from David Leonhardt, who 
is a very interesting read these days in part because he's one of a handful of people on the left who have taken up this role, maybe not of his own choosing, of explaining some of the follies of the left to itself. I can think of also Ben Dreyfus, if you follow him on uh, either Substack. His, uh, his writings on Substack are interesting and his Twitter feed is interesting as well. Uh, but David Leonhardt has been a, a kind of an interesting person, first about COVID and now – Uh, This very interesting piece about standardized testing called the misleading SAT debate. I'm going to give you the beginning of this. Higher education has a standardized test problem, and it's not the problem that many people think. During the pandemic, dozens of colleges dropped the requirement that applicants take the SAT or ACT. Although administrators generally describe the move as temporary, most colleges have since stuck to a test optional policy. But the loss of SAT and ACT scores has become a problem, administrators have told me. Without test scores, admissions officers sometimes struggle to distinguish between applicants who are likely to thrive at selective colleges and those likely to struggle. Why? Because high school grades do not always provide enough information, especially because of grade inflation in recent years. As Christina Paxson, the president of Brown University and still the president of Brown University. Uh, she, I don't know if she got an invite to that congressional hearing, but uh, she was not there, so still has a job. Recently wrote, standardized test scores are much are much better predictor of academic success than high school grades. Now, one of the reasons that, the, as a friend of mine said, and I, I've used this line often, a friend of mine once told me that for everything you do in life, there are two reasons. There's the good reason and the real reason. Um, I feel that in this case, with the dropping of SAT and ACT scores, um, the quote-unquote good, or at least in this case, convenient reason, was COVID. That it was actually difficult for people to go take proctored exams like this when we weren't allowing people to get into rooms with 25, 30, 40, 50, however many people would be taking the SAT or the ACT at the time. But I think this was something that was on the trajectory for especially elite higher education for a while. The kind of grade inflation that Leonhardt is talking about in high school definitely applies to college, too. You know, there's um, there have been people who have written about Harvard University that it's now very difficult to not get an A or a passing grade in whatever class you're taking at Harvard. Um, the, The way that they've changed their rubric and their grading and moving people along and. Typically, you would find – I can remember these arguments going back probably 20 years – arguments that standardized testing because uh, wealthier, uh, more affluent, more privileged people, typically white people in the argument as it goes, were able to pay for all kinds of test prep and different things to help – their kids, their students prepare for the SAT or the ACT, which weren't available to people in a lower socioeconomic part of the strata. And as a result, um, there was a racist valence to the way that a lot of people looked at the test results for the SAT and the ACT, even people going so far as to argue that the tests themselves were somehow racist. Um, I was like, there's a little bit of a point to that. If you go through like some of the old questions of, I can't remember if it's the S, I think it's the SAT of like, you know, uh, so boat is to regatta as something else is to something else. It's like, yeah, you, you can tell kind of like the people who wrote these questions, the kind of analogies they thought would click with most of the people getting them. A lot of that has since changed. 
But you have had this pushing back for a while now on forms of standardized testing in really all levels of education. And it is interesting to see David Leonhardt uh, recapping the experience now of selective university administrators saying like, boy, we're really having a hard time figuring out who is going to do well here and who is not, that we have taken away this means of evaluating incoming students. Dan, what do you make of this piece by David Leonhart and this bigger story? I mean, the fish trap exists to catch fish. And what we had in this country for many, many years was a system that was designed very straightforwardly to rank verbal and mathematical reasoning among students. And it did a fairly good job about of that. <clears throat> you know, now any test can be improved, in fact, needs to constantly be improved because particularly language keeps evolving and the rest of it. So like all of that taken aside, you have in the United States an extremely decentralized education system in which things like curriculum, things like funding levels, things like teaching philosophies, all these sorts of things differ widely across states, districts in the United States. We have charter schools, we have private schools, we have homeschooling. We have people in this country getting educated every which way you could imagine. And all of them seek entrance into a university system um, from all of those backgrounds. There's no, there's no track that really doesn't. There are kids that are homeschooled that want to pursue a university-level education. There are people in parochial schools, in public schools, in charter schools, all this sort of thing. How do you compare apples to apples? And there is no other way than by a standard examination. Um, Otherwise, you will privilege one of these other setups. Uh, you will privilege a certain sort of content. But the SAT is great about this. Is it, it is, it is, there is a verbal component. There is a mathematical component. The ACT gets a little trickier because it has other sort of disciplines that are more curriculum dependent. All of these are curriculum dependent. We teach children mathematical reasoning. We teach them verbal reasoning. Um, but it's the, it's, it's the least curriculum dependent sort of model you could get. So, of course, you are going to struggle. Now, you know, are there certain pairings of words that people of different sort of linguistic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds could pick up on? Yeah. But, you know, the same is true of any standard you're going to pick. So you can either be transparent about those, that standard. You can constantly look, try to make the test better, go back, try to get better results. And, but you can't, you can't get away from this thing. If you get away from this thing, then it either becomes a strictly pay-to-play which is not necessarily a bad thing. We have a community college system in this country that is designed to do particularly that, where your academic background does not matter. If you come here to learn, if you are willing to pay, if you are willing to take the classes and do the work, 
you can get in and you can get out with a degree. The other is, you know, increasingly idiosyncratic where every administration is is coming up with sort of ad hoc rules and trying to figure out how they're going to weigh certain extracurricular activities versus certain grades versus uh, everything else in trying to get a student population that ultimately you want to really have strong verbal and economic reasoning because – 90% of the coursework that you're going to be giving those students in American higher ed is going to be dependent upon those skills. There's a piece of Leonhardt's piece here that I will read because it speaks directly to what you were just talking about. And it's really the part of this that I like the most because it recalls the admonition by Milton Friedman that we need to judge public policies by the results that they produce, not by the intentions of the people who created the policies. And in this particular case, the intentions of the people who created the policies, the results end up being a complete 180 from what they were trying to do. Again, from Leonhardt here, I understand why many people dislike standardized tests. They're unpleasant to take and they have their flaws. The most significant concern is that they may be racially and economically biased. But the emerging data from academic research tells a different story. Standardized tests are less biased than many other parts of the college application process, like extracurricular activities, college essays, and teacher recommendations. An admission system that drops mandatory tests in favor of these other factors gives big advantages to affluent students. Test scores, by contrast, seem to be useful at identifying students from disadvantaged backgrounds who have enormous potential, even if their scores aren't quite as high on average as those of well-off applicants. Quote, when you don't have test scores, the students who suffer most are those with high grades at relatively unknown high schools, the kind that rarely send kids to the Ivy League. David Deming, a Harvard economist who has studied this issue, told me, quote, the SAT is their lifeline. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to mention one uh, correction to what you said earlier as a, a way of starting it. Uh, Harvard and other elite universities, uh, it's there's not great inflation across the board. It's discipline dependent. Uh, in fact, the STEM disciplines Fair. tend to still be competitive. Why? Because it is very easy to objectively measure whether or not someone got the right answer or not. Um, that tells us something about the humanities. There are objective components to the humanities, um, but those are unfortunately underemphasized right now. So there, there are components to what makes, you know, a, a, a good sonnet, right? You know, there are technical components that people can actually, you know, graded on whether they can identify them, whether they could produce something that, uh, you know, fulfills those uh, components and so on and so forth. But that is just the state of those disciplines. Unfortunately, they have taken a, a radically subjective turn um, and, for various reasons, they are kind of trying to prop themselves up. I think that it's really shooting themselves in the foot, though. High, you know, you look at a, I edit an academic journal for the Acton Institute. Um, our acceptance rate is what signals to scholars that we are a, you know, prestigious journal in any way. Not that we have a ton of prestige, but, you know, it's about one in six. Um, so the lower, the better. Scholars are looking for low acceptance rates. That means that you're extra selective. Um, so I realize it's, it's very, the, very much the opposite of what most people are thinking, especially if they're just trying to perpetuate their departments through enrollment. Um, 
But they should actually want to have lower graduation rates, you know, higher instances of failing grades, right? Doesn't mean that the teacher is failing. It means the teacher has standards. Um, so it's the standardized testing. We should have entry standards um, because we are setting people up for failure if we don't. Um, so there's, there's one side of that. Um, the other thing is, and the point that the article makes, uh, you know, people from, you know, either socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds or just poor school systems, um, this is a lifeline for them in terms of signaling uh, that, that they actually have the talent and the aptitude to perform well uh, in a university setting. Um, I went to not the best public school. Um, my middle school lost its accreditation the year after I graduated, and the year I started high school, they dropped all honors classes. So I had to hear about honors classes from people at other schools. And one thing I heard was that in honors classes, you get four points for a B, which I thought was silly, because it is silly. So the result being that if you get an A, you get five points, which means there was a ton of people from other schools graduating with more than a 4.0. Whereas the most, the best I could possibly get, if I had tried my best, which I definitely did not, um, although I still did fine because it was easy, uh, the best I could possibly get would be a 4.0, and it would be potentially one point below other high earner, you know, achievers at other schools. Um, so the grades are already a mess coming out of our secondary schools. Um, grade inflation there has been awful. Um, for a variety of reasons. And these standardized tests are a way, as you know, Dan put it, to compare apples to apples, to put everybody on a level playing field. Yes, there can be biases involved, um, but there's also transparency. There's these testing materials you can get and you can work through them. And if there's words you don't understand, you can look them up in a dictionary or you know, Google them or whatever people do now um, and figure it out um, so that you actually are prepared when time comes to take the test. And you can even retake the test. Again, I was a, a very low achiever. Um, I actually uh, went uh, low, low uh, motivated person, I should say. Uh, but I, I went to community college, as Dan mentioned. Community college is great. Um, and it is a really good option for a lot of people. But I knew I was going to community college. So I got a good enough ACT score, and I didn't even bother to take it again. Um, but had I actually aspired for more at the, that time in my life, um, that would have been an option available to me. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know why anybody would criticize these in the first place when you, you stack up all these reasons. Um, and I think it, it should be a lesson. You know, it makes me wonder about things like the humanities. Uh, the humanities are basically the equivalent of no ACT or no SAT as far as their actual discipline. Um, whereas STEM fields, you know if you know, an engineer got good grades, it's because they actually learned what they were supposed to learn, um, unless they cheated or something like that. But for the most part, you know, they tested well, they did well. Um, and uh, I think these people talked about the humanities being in crisis. I think we probably could find some of these, you know, worrisome inequalities uh, that, that have cropped up now that uh, this isn't an entry requirement uh, for getting into these schools. It's not an exit requirement for passing these programs that you have any kind of standardized testing. And it makes me wonder who exactly then is passing. It, it is to me redolent of that quote, um, I believe, of Churchill that democracy is the worst form of government ever created except, of course, for all the others. Um, you, there's no 
panacea. There's no perfect solution to being able to accurately evaluate every possible person that you could admit to an institute of higher education, especially elite ones like that. And this does seem to give the best way of evaluating that. And it is interesting to see people who were once hostile to that coming around now to accept it. You, Dylan reminded me of something from my college experience that I got um, a bit of a form of being a music major, but I always really remembered for the theater majors. Now, again, talk about something where uh, grading on objective criteria is really difficult. You know, what is a one good acting performance compared to another? You're bringing in elements of certainly would say that, you know, uh, for example, maybe Al Pacino fully into his scenery chewing era of Al Pacino acting, not the best acting performances, but they're still entertaining and a lot of people like them. So how do you evaluate these things? One of the ways they try to evaluate those students is to just look at them and try to grade, okay, what is the likelihood of you, a a person in full, are going to make it if you make this your career, which is a very subjective thing. So at the – if you are – if you were an MFA, you know, Master of Fine Arts or um, or a – Uh, excuse me, a a BFA, not MFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts as opposed to a Bachelor of Arts. The the quality grading was a little bit different. But for both, really, you would have after your freshman year uh, what were called hurdles and then after your sophomore year what were called barriers. And if you didn't do particularly well on the hurdles part of it, you got pulled into your advisor's office and your advisor told you, look, when your barriers come up at the end of next year – You really need to kill it. Otherwise, we're not going to continue in this Bachelor of Fine Arts program. Now you'll have options. You can drop down to a Bachelor of Arts. So you're not being conferred the highest possible degree that you could get in this field from this university. But the reason that they did that was to try to impart to a lot of these students, like, look, it's an incredibly competitive field that you're thinking of going into. Um, We're trying to tell you like, you know, hey, maybe you're going to have a really rough time making a living doing this. And it's not to say that you can't, you know, be John Cage and compose bizarre pieces for prepared piano while you're selling insurance. You can still pursue the arts, but maybe in this way, it isn't the thing for you. And I always thought that that was great. It was an opportunity for people who had experience in those fields, who knew what it was going to ask of those people, to evaluate them and say, I think you're going to have a hard time. That's not to say that you can't make it. There, you know, there are all kinds of people who are underrated in all kinds of different areas of life who still manage to make a success of it. But they're less likely. Um, and I, I, think, I think there's some parallels here to like what we're seeing with the – a similar attempt, uh, and I don't know that this has happened at my alma mater, but to water down that kind of curriculum, that we just move everybody along, that you can get a BFA in the same way that you can get an education degree. And I remember thinking of even just some of the music educators that I was in school with, like, man, you're going to stand in front of a classroom? Like, I don't know that that's going to work out so well for you or the kids. Um, But you have to have some way to try to evaluate people. And again, for... The uh, this is interesting again from the Leonhardt piece. Test scores are not the main factor that MIT uses, but they are part of the process. 
Quote, once we brought the test requirement back, we admitted the most diverse class that we ever had in our history, Stuart uh, Schmill, the admissions dean, said. In MIT's current first-year class, 15% of students are black, 16 are Hispanic, 38% are white, 40% are Asian American. And MIT is more economically diverse than many other elite schools. And again, uh, this is a school that does not do legacy admissions like a lot of other elite universities do. And Institute of Technology, more geared towards a lot of these things that you can evaluate on a much more objective basis than in the arts on a subjective basis. But again, I I am really attracted to this story for that kind of Friedmanite point of the move to eliminate standardized testing or minimize standardized testing was done in the name of helping certain groups of people. And it turns out the effect it had was to harm those certain groups of people. And I appreciate people like Leonhardt, who I think would have been probably, if you went back 15 years, sympathetic to that original campaign to reevaluate it based on the actual results that we are seeing and to have a reappraisal of these efforts and to, re- and to rethink it and go, maybe we are better off having the SAT or ACT as a way of evaluating incoming students. If you are, have trub- <clears throat> if you are having trouble evaluating students' knowledge of your discipline, that is a curriculum problem. That is not a discipline problem. There are certain things that you can teach in this world and there are certain things that you can't teach. There are things that you can't teach that are involved in every single discipline. But you shouldn't be grading on those. And you shouldn't be issuing a degree telling people that they can do those things if you can't evaluate it. You... A lot of people blame, you know, there are a lot of teachers in the world that will go on and on about how, oh, what they do is, you know, this transcendent inspirational thing that can't be put in a test. Well, maybe that's true. You know, there's personal charisma of many people we meet in our lives that, you know, enriches our human experience. But if we are talking about knowledge and if we are talking about teaching and learning, that is measurable. That is something you might not be able to evaluate whether the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will ever give this particular student a Best Actor or a Best Actress award, but you could certainly evaluate what percentage of their lines they successfully memorize and what percentage of them they flub. Um, You can, you know, and someone who is, you know, a master of the discipline of theater, which is what one should be if one is teaching theater, will be able to drill down much more effectively into those testable, learnable, teachable skills. There are certain things that you can't teach. There are certain things about mathematics that you can't teach. You cannot teach someone to win a Fields Medal. There is a certain sort of genius that comes from a mysterious place in every discipline um, that you cannot teach and you should not represent yourself as teaching. But if you can claim to teach it, you should be able to verify that by testing it. And if you cannot, you should not be making those claims. Let's move now to our next topic. On Friday, I'll read here from a piece in National Review. 
Well, many American cities can uh, continue to struggle with proliferation of homeless camps in their parks and on their sidewalks. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that could determine if enforcing bans on those camps is a violation of the Constitution. The Supreme Court on Friday agreed to review an appellate court ruling in Johnson v. Grants, one of two Ninth Circuit rulings that limited the ability of municipalities to enforce camping bans against involuntary homeless people with nowhere else to go and when there is not enough shelter space for all of them. Critics say the rulings have supercharged the proliferation of homeless camps in Western states. Quote, the court's decision to hear this case is a welcome development for cities nationwide, but especially in the West, uh, that have suffered from a homelessness crisis largely as a result of the Ninth Circuit's misguided decision to essentially create a constitutional right to sleep on the streets. Timothy Sandifer, vice president of legal affairs for the Arizona-based Goldwater Institute, said in an email to National Review. Maybe just a little bit more of his analysis here. Quote, the Ninth Circuit's decision, he said, quote, is based on the demeaning notion that people who choose to live in public parks and on sidewalks, quote, can't help it. A nonsense idea that hurts both the homeless and the hardworking taxpayers who must suffer from the dangerous conditions caused by the Ninth Circuit's ruling. The ruling, he continued, quote, has destroyed businesses, wrecked public parks, and worsened conditions for the poorest Americans, many of whom need treatment that the Ninth Circuit's ruling essentially blocks them from receiving. That's wrong morally and constitutionally, and we look forward to the Supreme Court fixing this judge-created mess. So we will, of course, put uh, the story in the show notes for people to review it. Um, obvious disclaimer that none of us are lawyers, nor are we the kind of lawyers that have gone to those couple of elite institutions that get to argue kinds of things before the Supreme Court like this. So while we may touch on the law part of it, I want to touch less on that and whether this is constitutionally permissible. Let's even assume that it is. What is the wisdom of public policy that allows for these kinds of public spaces to be used as homeless encampments. And what could we be doing differently to encourage cities to deal with these things in better, more productive ways? We, we do have as any um, we're, you know, a mid-sized city here in Grand Rapids, but we have homeless people here in Grand Rapids. I ponder what they are doing right now because as we speak, it is 10 degrees outside and I believe it feels like it's about five below. It is very, very cold. It is not the kind of environment you want to be outside in, which again goes to Tim Sandifer's point here about how this has been disproportionately affecting states out west where temper uh, temperatures and, and climates are more enjoyable. Uh, so what do we make of this being allowed and I think you could argue encouraged through the public policy choices of cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, and even I was just in Chicago between Christmas and New Year in Chicago as well, despite the uh, cold weather that comes to Chicago, I did driving down 9094 on my way out of town see one of these encampments along where Maxwell Street Market used to be. What do we make, uh, again, less of the constitutional question here and more of the wisdom and public policy question here? So I, I do think in this case there might be another sort of Friedman-esque you know, intentions and, con and you know, consequences not quite 
lining up. There are people who are homeless and on their own cannot help it. They burn bridges. Maybe they have mental illness or, uh, you know, addictive behaviors, substance abuse, that sort of thing. And what those people need is help because they can't help themselves. Um, it, it It's interesting the reasoning that, you know, you can't tell these people to camp here because you don't have adequate homeless shelters. Um, that at least seems to presume there is some duty of the state, and I think there is, maybe more as a last resort um, here in Grand Rapids, we have a lot of private uh, organizations, um, or at least nonprofits. They probably get a lot of um, government money, but still, um, we have we have a lot of of private groups uh, that offer just an abundance of services uh, for uh, homeless people and people uh, who are struggling um, in terms of having a place to live, uh, falling on hard times, whatever the case may be, and the the people who are chronically homeless as well. Um, so actually, I don't worry too much about those here in Grand Rapids because I, I know about a dozen places they might be able to go, um, even just to stay warm. So I'm, I, I feel pretty great about that. But for whatever reason, that's, those services are not available in, say, L.A. or San Francisco. Um, I don't really know the causes. One of them might be the price of real estate. <laughs> I'm not really sure how much Oh, I think cost. that's a pretty good bet, yeah. Um, but there is a web of terrible laws and regulations that are contributing to the high cost of real estate. Um, so this is a case where some other unintended consequences are now leading to this. A measure is being putting, put in place with good intentions, um, but the unintended consequences are making it even worse um, because now you've just said you can camp anywhere. On the one hand, it's kind of good. It indicts the city and the these these areas that, hey, you are getting something very wrong if this is what is happening. The problem is it seems that in you know from all the protests, all these groups that want this to go to the Supreme Court, everyone feels like their hands are tied. There's just such a web of laws and regulations getting in the way of people actually helping these people, um, getting these people the help they need, uh, that you know it, the solution isn't what, what other way can we tie people's hands? Um, the people who want to help and who want to um, clean up their cities and actual cleaning up their cities does matter. These camps are not sanitary. There's not, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of very serious public health concerns involved in this, um, as well as, you know, even more importantly, importantly, the, the dignity and the safety and the well-being of the people who, who feel they have no other option in life. Um, you need to start scaling these things back. Um, and, they need a good economist to go in and identify these areas of unintended consequences that have made it so hard to provide the services that, um, you know, thank God we are able to provide here in Grand Rapids. Your point about the hygiene question of all of this is is well taken. I just did a, uh, not too long ago, a podcast uh, Act in Line episode with Noah Rothman from National Review, who had this really interesting piece in in the magazine, National Review magazine, uh, that was called The Great Unlearning, playing off of the Tom Wolfe essay from 1987 on The Great Relearning, where he looked back at Haight-Ashbury in the late 1960s and found that the free clinics in San Francisco were 
having people come in with these maladies that they could not easily diagnose and that they had to return to very old medical textbooks in order to figure out what these people had to the point that like these these issues didn't even have the, you know, Latinified names that we come to associate with a lot of diseases. Uh, they were only referred to in these books by, as I have my notes here from from that episode, the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff, and the rot. Because one, that's how old they were, and that's what they were referred to as. But because they were associated with periods of time where we did not have the either availability of general hygiene. Uh, products or the conventions built around general hygiene as these hippies were kind of just eschewing them to live more authentically. And the great relearning was to be like, oh, yeah, we live in these kinds of ways for a reason. So that that concern very much is a real one that these cities have to uh, have to grapple with. I want to add on top of this one other note. Uh, there's a story out of New York City. Um, so one of the things that's complicating this as well, I'm sure, is the migrant crisis that we currently have in this country um, because of the situation at the border. A lot of migrants are coming over. They're often being bussed or flown to major cities. You have probably undoubtedly read about this. Chicago is one that is having difficulty dealing with them. New York is another that's having difficulty dealing with it. And there was a high school in Brooklyn that as a terrible cold front was approaching – um, the high school, I don't know if they volunteered or were told that they were going to be used as a temporary facility to house these migrants, but all the students were moved to online virtual learning for the time period, and the migrants were moved into the high school. And I read stories like this, and I ask myself, if the people in charge of making these decisions were trying to foment social unrest, what would they be doing differently? I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I don't know that they would be doing anything differently. But the kind of uh, tension in one's mind that as a, you know, as you might imagine, the typical Brooklynite and their politics are going to be, what is that old phrase, mugged by reality here very quickly and come out on a less sympathetic side to the migrant crisis because of the way that they have now been inconvenienced, put out as a result of it. Not because I think they're on, have, uh, th there's a problem with them feeling that way, but because there's been a failure from the top down, from the federal government down to the state government, down to city governments to find effective ways of dealing with this and other homelessness problems that don't make it a collective problem for the entire city and that decrease. And the reason that uh, broken windows policing was so popular is because people like those kinds of quality in life things to be good if you're going to live in a major city. These are things that affect quality of life. These are human beings too, and we need to care for them. But the people who are the responsible taxpaying citizens of these cities do have rights as well. And nobody is working out, is really it's working out well for anybody in this situation right now. So this is the question. <clears throat> we have two sort of public policy responses. One is a sort of anti-camping ordinance applied. The other is a indulgence 
of this sort of public campaign. There are different dimensions of this problem, and both of those are better or worse solutions for different dimensions of it. Now, when I've talked to law enforcement that have been reluctant to enforce anti-campaign legislation, the reason is they want to know where these people are. They want to develop relationships with these people. They want to be able to keep an eye on these communities, keep an eye on criminal behavior, criminals who often exploit these communities, be they pimps, be they drug traffickers, be they uh, violent persons, either you know, also homeless or violent criminal elements that prey on the homeless. Um, they want to be aware of that. They also want to be aware of this from a and, and them be aware and, and the homeless be aware of the police because of the mental health crisis dimension of this, which is if somebody decides they've hit their bottom and they want to get help, they want to have a relationship with that person where they feel comfortable coming to them and they feel that they can get help. Now, that's to be said for the not enforcement. For the enforcement, you have the public health aspect. You do not get the sort of disease outbreaks that you know you and Noah were talking about if you do not if you if you do not allow this. If you break up these camps, if you do not allow these unsanitary conditions, you also have a public order dimension to this and a question of preserving the commons for use for all citizens equally and not allowing people to monopolize these things. And the reality of it is, is this is always negotiated between these two. Because even when you have an ordinance that every that everyone agrees should be enforced, that rigorously enforces, there are parts of town where it doesn't get enforced as much. Even in places where they say, oh, you can stay anywhere you want. Well, there are some places that people never end up you know, they never end up, you know, on the mayor's lawn, even if it's city property. Why is that? Strange. It's not, it's not because the lawn isn't a nice place. It's because, again, there's this selective enforcement. The greatest community of people in Grand Rapids that are homeless, most of us don't see every day. Even those of us who live and work downtown, very close to the shelters, very close to these populations, they live in an old dump down in Butterworth. And they camp in tents down by the river. And this is these are the sort of places there is not a quick and easy, elegant policy solution any way you slice it. There are trade-offs with these approaches. And there are good reasons that people should be able to negotiate those trade-offs. Um, and these sort of blanket rulings, such as that you can't enforce these things, I think is, is bad policy. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's also, you know, it would be a mistake to just at all times and all places just disrupt and create, uh, homelessness is a problem. Vagrancy is also a problem. And if you, if, if it's just about the camping enforcement, then you don't solve the vagrancy problem. You've, 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 
you maybe can solve the camps, some dimensions of that problem, but it exacerbates other dimensions of this problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of this quote that Noah pointed out in his piece that was from the uh, neoconservative thinker Nat Glazer. Um, I'm glad he actually traced down where it was from. It was from a lecture in the early 1990s that he was giving uh, where he was describing the governments of these major cities in the late 60s and early 1970s. Um, and I'll, I'll paraphrase him that at some point cities stopped doing the things that they know how to do like picking up the trash or policing its own citizenry and started trying to do things that no one knows how to do, like solving poverty or extricating racism from the human heart. And you, Dan is absolutely right that there are trade-offs involved in any of these public policy choices. But what I think you're essentially seeing from a lot of these cities is an abdication of wanting to have to make hard choices. And as a result, they just kind of let these things grow on their own. And you, I think the worst case of it is, is arguably San Francisco, where you have, you know, very limited places for people to live to start with, very difficult to build new housing at all, very expensive homes and gated communities. And then you have a homeless and migrant issue in and around downtown to the point where if you followed the presidential debates, you saw Ron DeSantis break this out in his debate with Gavin Newsom. There is a map that you can pull up of San Francisco that documents where human feces are on the streets. That is not a livable solution for anyone, either the people who are the housed taxpaying citizens of San Francisco or the homeless people who need help and a better, more intelligent way of dealing with the problems they're facing and the collective problem that the city is facing as a result of this. So with the caveat that we're not lawyers, I, I was really curious about the ruling. So you have this, you know, as, as the one group put it, essentially uh, invented constitutional right, the people have the right to camp. And yet the ruling is that uh, clearing out these camps is cruel and unusual punishment. My first thought was punishment for what? Yes. Yeah. If they have a right to do this, then, <laughs> right? Then So it, the other option, or at least an other option, not that I think this is at all a best thing, but if this actually were illegal and these people could be arrested and put in prison, prison has a roof and it has indoor plumbing. It's far more sanitary. I don't think we should fill our prisons with people. Our prisons are already overcrowded. Um but it seems like that should at least be on the table well, because I, there are – we do live in this problem. As, as Dan mentioned, you always have to negotiate these bounds because you need to respect the inherent dignity of every person. At the same time, you need to acknowledge that we live east of Eden uh, you know, in a fallen, broken world and we're not going to be able to you know, politic our way into a perfect solution for anything. Um, there are going to be people that even with the best services, even with the best laws, even with the best, you know, public programs, private programs, you know, ministries, charities, churches, all that sort of thing. There are going to be people who don't fit um, and still need something. This is something. Why yeah. take it off the table? Yeah, the there are two other places that came to mind that also have roofs and have indoor plumbing and all of those things. They're mental health facilities and they are addiction treatment clinics. Mm -hmm. um, which you know, my 
part and parcel of my argument against the war on drugs for years is is less about that it's you know a good thing and people should be it's not it's not the pure uh, Ron Paul on the debate stage libertarian position of like yeah let everybody do heroin um, it's more the there are people who are going to do these things and it needs to be treated as a health issue more than as a criminality issue the unintended consequences of throwing people into prisons uh, I think it's pretty well documented at this point that you know it takes softer criminals and hardens them over time. Just not the best way to deal with either the mental health aspect or the addiction aspect of this. But those are two other places that do uh, have roofs and indoor plumbing and all of those things and could be helping these people and food and all those things as well. I think I'll just note before we move on um, as as a bit of a court watcher, even though, again, not a lawyer. uh, One, the Ninth Circuit is the most reversed court in the entire country. And there is just kind of a simple logic to uh, if the if the Supreme Court agreed with the uh, circuit court ruling, they wouldn't be taking the case. So the likelihood that the Ninth Circuit court ruling here is getting overturned seems very likely. Now, of course, the devil is always in the details. It is how the opinion is written. It is how broad and sweeping it is. Um, But I think we could probably safely assume that uh, this Ninth Circuit Court ruling is going to get overturned by the Supreme Court in uh, after this case is heard. And then cities will have to once again go back to the drawing board and hopefully they will listen to us and uh, the work of the Center for uh, Social Flourishing here at the Acton Institute about how we can deal with issues like poverty and homelessness much more effectively than cities are now. I do want to touch on one final topic before we go, and that is Joe Biden, of course, campaigning for re-election as president of the United States. He was in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm going to read here from an Associated Press report. Courting black voters, he needs to win re-election. President Joe Biden on Monday denounced the, quote, poison of white supremacy in America, declaring at the site of a deadly racist church shooting in South Carolina that such ideology has no place in America, quote, not today, tomorrow. Or ever. Biden spoke from the pulpit of Mother Emanuel AME Church, where in 2015, nine black parishioners were shot to death by the white stranger they had invited to join their Bible study. The Democratic president's speech followed his blunt remarks last Friday on the eve of the anniversary of the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol, in which he excoriated former President Donald Trump for, quote, glorifying rather than condemning political violence. At Mother Emanuel, Biden said, quote, the word of God was pierced by bullets of hate, of rage, propelled not just by gunpowder, but by a poison, a poison that has for too long haunted this nation. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of this, either the electoral politics question here, qua the electoral politics question or the argument that Biden was making here, except in the context of asking the question, this is a church that he is speaking at. This is, it seems to me, arguably at least, a campaign speech that he is giving from the pulpit of this church. You can find the video of it online. We'll put a link to that from C-SPAN in the show notes as well as this Associated Press account. But there were chants of four more years from the parishioners. Now, there is always going to be a bit of a line that is going to get a little bit blurry between, you know, addressing topics of political import within the confines of a church. And when that bleeds over into politicking from the pulpit, which 
people have accused Joe Biden of doing here. And I think they have um, they have a decent argument to make about that. So lots of different churches out there, lots of different ways of approaching how the pastors of these churches will deal with issues of political import within the confines of the services that they conduct. Uh, I'm curious, uh, two Catholics and and, an Orthodox Christian here, what do you make of the whole context of this, of Biden speaking at this church? Of course, there's a compelling reason, as was laid out in the Associated Press story, of that terrible shooting that happened there. Um, But how do you process questions of politics coming from the church pulpit like this? So this is not in any way abnormal. It just isn't. I mean, there are churches that tell their parishioners who to vote for every year. There are pastors who, you know, there are pastors who anoint political candidates. Um, That that sounds like a level above letting them talk (laughs) from your pulpit to me. Um, So... I think maybe the concern people have, I you know, correct me if I'm wrong, would be separation of church and state, something like that. But that's not what that's about. That's about disestablishment, right? Yeah. You know, he wasn't Biden did not declare the AME Church the established church of the United States of America. That's not. That's just not what was going on there. Um, and that's they, an important point. One of the most misunderstood things about uh, American uh, civic life and political culture is the importation of that Jefferson quote about the separation of church and state into an understanding of, you know, the uh, the establishment clause uh, jurisprudence. Uh, it all gets very confused and messy, but, you know, it was certainly never the intention of the founders that religion could not be a part of public life right. and political life. Yeah, churches, uh, people vote at churches. I mean, there, there's they're part of our civic life, and that something that makes us different than France is that we've always been okay with this, even when it's uncomfortable. Now, just because it should be allowed uh, does not mean people can't have an opinion about whether or not it's a good idea. Um, I find, to use a technical term, all of this... Uh, you know, especially the, you know, we're going to anoint so-and-so or we're going to, the pastor's telling you who to vote for is, uh, as the internet people say, cringe. Uh, it is really, really bad for a church to, I mean, it's, I understand if they invited him to come, he does care. This is something he has spoken a lot about. Um, and it was a, a genuine tragedy and it's an honor for the president of the United States to come and try to offer some comfort for these people. Fine. Um, so this is less egregious to me than the other, basically every other occasion of it. But even so, I think the pulpit should be for preaching the gospel. I think churches should be about living the gospel and demonstrating the power of the resurrection to people living, you know, walking through the shadow of the valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Um, that's what it's for. That's what it's about. Um, there are social implications. There may even be political implications. But I think it is important for churches to know their own vocation. So I'm not so much worried, actually, about President Biden qua politician. I'm more worried about these churches qua churches, um, that they are losing sight of what their real calling is when they allow stuff like this. Again, you know, this to me is one of the least egregious cases of that, uh, even if it is totally, yeah, it was a campaign speech, whatever. Um, I understand the reasoning. 
Yeah, they could have they could have set up a podium in the hall or whatever if they have something like that or outside. Well, I don't know if the weather's great <laughs> at this point, this time of year. So they, you know, again, there might be even just practical concerns why he was inside and at the pulpit. Um, but that's kind of my opinion is that it's great. You know, it's good to have a politician come to church. I'd rather them go than not. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think the church in particular, should be very careful about how closely they associate. And that's every kind of church, uh, not just uh, Protestant ones like the Amy Church, uh, but certainly uh, in our own churches, we've, we've seen this sort of thing as well. One of the most salutary developments of doctrine in the Catholic Church of the 20th century was when John Paul II prohibited Catholic clergy from serving in civic government. At the time, we had a representative in the House of Representatives uh, <clears throat> that was a Roman Catholic priest, a Jesuit priest, who, uh, when this happened, stepped down. We had an opposite reaction in Nicaragua with uh, Father Ernesto Cordonal, who was part of the Sandinista regime and culture minister. Um, he was, in fact, maybe one of the causes for... Um, for this uh, was you had these you had these priests and religious that would involve themselves in politics not only in all the problematic ways that Dylan has elucidated but sometimes with with bona fide murderous regimes that engaged in human rights abuses and a very <clears throat> quick and easy way to cut through that sticky Gordian knot is to just say this is not the clergy's place to be active in politics. Now, that's not true everywhere else. There are, I am, I am sure there are Presbyterian ruling elders that serve, if not in this nation's house or this nation's Senate, in state legislatures. There are all sorts of ordained folks um, who come from various religious traditions. They're involved in America's political life and involved in, in the political lives of, of their own nations. Uh, in, in India, one of its largest Protest, uh, one of its largest provinces, uh, the uh, the head of that particular state is a uh, is a Hindu monk. Um, this happens, um, and it is it is it is always, um, to say the very least, in the parlance of our times, problematic. Now, I have been in churches where. Mayors have spoken. I've been in the audience in a church when a senator has spoken. Um, this is something that is also part and parcel of American life, is that America's pulpits, by and large, have been open to politicians, um, especially Americans' Protestant pulpits. Um, this is something that I'm not particularly comfortable with, but it is also part of our heritage as a nation, is that these sorts of addresses get made in these ecclesial contexts. I I don't know what to make of it. I don't I I mean I'm I think I think Pope John Paul II got it right. I think that there's a very good bright line in making clergy. Actually, we do have a clergy. Uh, uh, Senator Warnock yep. is Reverend Warnock in Georgia. So we do in, in the yep. United States today. We have a Protestant clergyman in the Senate. Um, that, is, that, is, that is something that, that I am deeply uncomfortable with. But I'm also very, very uncomfortable with the sort of strict separation 
that we see in France in a secularization of public life. And you know maybe maybe the cost of this of this of this American experiment is these cringy moments from time to time. So uh, another factor that I think is worth mentioning is that uh, many churches and certainly many historically black churches uh, are also community centers, and the pastors are community leaders as much as they are spiritual leaders. And that's why you get people. Uh, it's very common for community leaders simply to, to get an MDiv or to get ordained, um, to get a PhD, and then to run for office. Like this, this sort of thing has happened for a long time. Um, so I, again, for me, I, I think it's cringe. I think it's a kind of a, a confusion of vocations. But I do think it's important to take a step back and realize that an outsider perspective here might not be as helpful uh, as in other cases that... I think I, I have a point, um, and I think they ought to consider it. Um, but I also recognize that this is there. There are there are some some cultural aspects to this that are simply foreign to me, and that doesn't necessarily make them, on the face of it, wrong. I think that's a very good point. I'll return to it real quickly in a second here. But uh, I love when I learn something new, and so I looked it up. There were two priests, Robert Drynan and Dryden Robert John Cornell. Uh, who served in the United States Congress in 1980 when Pope John Paul II decreed that priests not serve in elective office. Representative Drynan withdrew from his re-election campaign, and Cornell withdrew from his bid to regain the seat he had lost in the 1978 congressional election. So I always like when I learn something new like yeah. that. I, I think, Dylan, you make a very good point about this as being an outsider to the culture of this particular church and this particular line of church um, does— color anything that I would have to say about it, because there are marked and important differences. It's not to say that there aren't some overarching uh, ways of thinking about this that I think are helpful. I think it is also important to remember that the separation of church and state to the extent that it does exist in this country was just as much, if not more, to protect the integrity of the church as it was to protect the integrity of the government. Uh, that gets inverted a lot in a much more secularizing society and culture in the way that I hear a lot of people talk about it, that they don't want people bringing their religious views into their government service. Um, that is just not something that the founding fathers would have understood. They absolutely, in the, at minimum in the way that Bill Buckley always used to describe it, that my faith informs my views would have absolutely been a part of governance early on. Um, but the the inverse of that to protect the church and the important role of the church from encroachment from the state is as much a part of that, if not more a part of that, than, than the other way around. Um, I, you know, in a, in a weird way, going back to the last topic we were talking about, the way that I think about drug policy is actually somewhat similar here, which is this isn't the kind of thing that I want to be illegal, but it's also not the kind of thing that I want to see a lot of. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, again, the, the choices that those individual churches make about all of this and the people who are in organizations that are going to push the boundaries of all of this are going to exist and they're going to prompt conversations like this. Uh, to me, the question of import is, is which direction is the message that is being delivered from the pulpit of a church oriented? Is it oriented up 
or is it oriented out the front door? And that's not to say that there aren't important things that people should take out the front door with them. But by my lights, and again, approaching this as a Catholic, the what I want to hear from the pulpit in my church is things that are oriented up towards the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. And that's the reason why I think I agree with you that this kind of stuff makes me cringe. It doubly does so when it's, you know, and this is unfair to a certain extent, maybe when it's Joe Biden, you know, the kind of man who um, certainly has his history with race oriented politics. This is a man who said of uh, John McCain in 2008 that, quote, they want to put y'all back in chains. So he's got his own dicey history with this kind of stuff. So I think you are allowed to take these things into into your interpretation and to contextualize them. And I think I think we're all kind of largely in agreement here that it's like, you know, none of us want to ban this. There is a long history of it, but I I'd prefer to see less of it than more of it. Yeah. So just to add, uh, Again, I, you know, already reiterating that it's not my thing and I find it cringe. I think there are important exceptions in the history of our nation, which mean this should not go away and which ought to give anyone in my position a little pause. So I have a book of uh, sermons of the American founding era. and You can find stuff in there from Witherspoon, for example, um, from the pulpit encouraging Americans to participate in the revolution. Um, it has always been uh, an important point in public, your place of public life. Um, and then I was reading this morning, because it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, once again, his letter from the Birmingham jail. Um, and it was interesting, on the one hand, he answered those who criticized him for basically being too political, right? Why not wait and why not, you know, go through the process and why are you... Um, you're challenging these these laws and so on and so forth. Um, on the other hand, he actually goes out of his way to say there was an election coming up, so we postponed our rally until after it was over, so as not to give the appearance that they were, you know, uh, involving themselves in that. Um, so there there is you know a lot of balance um, that's needed for for this sort of activity. Um, and you know maybe you have President Biden come the day after the election instead of when. You, you know, the campaign is underway, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think that that gets into a level of prudence uh, to where, uh, you know, I don't think there's a hard and fast. So here's the clear, easy, correct uh, thing to do for any particular church. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to this extra long episode of Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. And a special thanks to Father Sirico. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.